Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm pleased today to welcome Tsepo Mahakhani. Tsepo is an investment banker with 20 years of experience across Sub-Saharan, primarily based in the city of London. Tsepo currently acts as senior advisor in investment banking and asset management. He has worked across strategic equities, risk capital, unlock private equity, special situation investing managers and acquisitions, etc. Seppo, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you for having me. That's lovely. So I thought, uh, based on your experience, you, you could give us uh, some insights into commodity trading and financial market. Let's start with this. What are some of the challenges that promoters face in securing finance for our mining projects? I think the biggest one, Sheila, for most of these promoters is that, yes, they do get these licenses, exploration licenses or mining licenses, but what they like is a capsule. And uh, let's say some of these projects, most of them, you actually, what, what option do you have? Do you try to list it in AIM? Do you try to list it in, on a TSX, TSX or the ASX? It takes money. You know, um, there is substantial cost attached to actually listing. And some of these promoters don't even have that capital. And they are left with very few options in terms of how they actually access the capital to go take this project through the various stages. So what they try and do is very substandard work whereby they'll do a scoping study, but it's not really up to standard. Uh, they don't do any, they cut corners. Uh, they don't comply to various, um, what I could call uh, processes that are out there that the finances look at. So they tend to spin wheels quite a lot in, take, in taking their projects through the various stages of development. And um, I think that's why you see such a backlog of projects. You do have licenses out there, people carrying licenses, you know, and rocks in their cars, but they don't really are not able to just properly systematically take that project through the various stages, scoping, pre-feasibility, bankable feasibility, you know, financing and commissioning and into production. That's where you struggle a lot when it comes to the junior miners base. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, Tabo, because, you know, for the lay person, we hear that there is a commodity boom, that demand is going to increase by uh, 500%. And, and yet there you are telling us that we have projects that are just not taking off. How is the current commodity boom impacting uh, financial decisions? Uh, you know, is, is it, is it uh, not changing and moving the needle in any way? I think it is moving the needle, but not, I don't think sufficiently enough. What you tend to see right now is that you have our, let's say, let's group, the financiers into two groups, one that is looking for a financial return and one whereby there are strategic reasons. You know, it might be industry, it might be a family that normally, a family office that comes from the mining sector. The guys who are looking for financial return is, I think it's a bit, it's a bit of a bridge too far for them in terms of, they don't want to do what no one else is doing. So it's who moves best when it comes to all these LPs in, in the Americas across Europe. But on the strategic side, you're starting to see people who actually understand the consequences of actually not this, getting this metal out of the ground, the consequence of actually not risk unlocking these various projects. 
I think uh, right now we just have to hope that more and more strategics come on board because I think that is how to solve it uh, in the in the short term to medium term. But long term, we need all that money sitting within these LPs to come into the sector. I always give this simple example. You have about five, six specialist investors in the sector. Uh, they have in total about 15 billion, I'm being very generous, 15 billion assets under management. And most of those guys don't actually even look at Africa. So you have all these very th these various fiendish type of problems that you actually encounter at every stage. We are going to need all these LPs to come on board because you need over a trillion, a trillion US dollars versus 15 billion US dollars. So you actually, we still need so many people to come into the space and actually find conjuries that actually understand the sector to actually deploy the capital and get the minerals out. So you, you've said a mouthful and there's a couple of things I want to follow through. So you make a distinction between what you call strategic investors and non-strategic investors. Can you spend just a little time uh, explaining that? When as a financer, when you see those two categories, what separates them? I think the key one will be um, on, on the non-strategics. They're just looking for a financial return. Can they get it from private equity that is investing in an industrial company in the U.S., in America? Also in the U.S., uh, in Europe, they will do it. And they don't have much incentive to actually just go a bit further and say, can I get this return uh, even in the natural resources sector? They effectively say, you know what, I don't understand the sector. It will take me too much time to actually convince my committees internally to actually give me the approval to deploy this capital in there. So you have those guys. I mean, it's going to be an education process. And I think for the governments as well, you need incentives to get these guys to actually consider this seriously. You need to align the incentives whereby they need to deploy the capital into natural resources. On the strategic side, people are starting to understand and waking up to the fact that China has con is controlling the refining and the processing of all these metals. More importantly, China is actually putting so much capital so that they control the extraction of these resources. So these guys are looking at it from that countries and say, hey, what actually happens to us? We're an industrialized country. If we do not get these metals and we have to depend on China, uh, the Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine situation is going to look like a Sunday school picnic. So what do we do? Most of them are actually working hard to try and find uh, structures that will work for them to be able to deploy this capital via the right con conjures in, in Africa. Because uh, one, you're dealing with the sector, um, but more importantly, you're dealing with emerging markets. You need people who understand both those things. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think I understand entirely what you're saying, because you know, uh, as you, you, you will know, in the resource sector, most governments and most observers assume that if you have a continent like Africa and it has, or people perceive it to be minerally wealthy, that that is enough. What you're telling us is that no, it's more complex than that. Uh, because clearly Africa has been, has had the advantage of dealing with major companies that understand the industry take a long-term view. But what you are saying is there's a layer of other potential investors who neither know the industry nor know the region enough 
to take a judgment call on risk. And and this is causing some timidity. And 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 when they think about where to put money, Africa doesn't become a logical place to go to, given lack of knowledge, but also peculiar emerging market uh, challenges. A am I correct? Yes, you are correct. I mean, uh, you do have some capital that is somehow related to the sector and mining, but it tends to be more downstream. You know, um, uh, as you, you, you've been in the sector for so long, you understand that immediately when you go from actually buying the metal, let's say you buy the metal from one of these warehouses from the LME or something along those lines, it's very different from taking that risk and understanding exactly the entire supply chain for that metal to reach that warehouse. It's a different type of risk and you need a different skill set to actually execute properly, to actually mitigate your risk properly. Absolutely. So now, uh, when we think about these challenges of raising capital, are you finding that the, the challenges are uniform or are you finding that when dealing with uh, energy transition materials, there's a lot more flexibility or are you finding that there's no difference in terms of how prospective financiers view risk and prospects? I think a lot of financiers right now are still stuck in their own model of actually doing things. But more importantly, I think what happened with Basel III for most of the banks that used to sort of fund these projects, that understand this risk properly. I was at a South African investment bank in London where we did this. We had a few teams that did our, our, that sort of offered our products. But what has happened within these banks is that these teams have been shut down and we had a lot of capital that we deployed. Now, what, what has replaced this capital? Nothing. You have a few guys out there with 750 to a billion funds that are actually trying to sort of plug that gap, but it's just not sufficient. Um, a lot of the banks, or if you look at the French banks, they used to be quite big when it comes to commodities and derivatives. But a lot of those teams have been shut down as well. But more importantly, nothing has replaced them. Uh, that's the fundamental problem. And I hope that a lot of politicians, a lot of policymakers wake up to the fact that you actually, a lot of these projects that were sort of unlocked, you know, if you look at the DRC, they were done by teams that are no longer there. So how are we going to unlock up these various projects that are needed, that are desperately needed? It's a big question. Unless we find a big shift when it comes to policy making, incentives are given to a lot of finances, we're really going to struggle in 10 years' time. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's not only that we struggle. It's that if you look at um, the region's share of exploration uh, expenditure in minerals, it has moved from uh, double digits to very low single digit. So you already have a potential drying out of uh, the project pipeline. And, and if you then add the, the drop in finance in the markets period, you have a compounded uh, effect. And I'm not sure to your point that policymakers realize the, the potential impact in the long run. Uh, on the mining industry and all other, uh, you know, industries around mining. So uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you spoke about the gap between project phase to get in the metal into the warehouse. 
what is the uh, appetite, if you wish, for finance, mid and downstream of mining? Is that better or are you finding that it's equally difficult to secure funding for projects at, if you wish, the metal fabrication stage? I think that's another challenge because traditional investors will say, I want to go upstream as much as possible. The margins are higher. The capital intensity is lower. Uh, and when, as you go downstream, downstream, the capital intensity increases and you're losing margin. So you have that devilish type of uh, points that you have to deal with. So how do you actually, when you say, let's say, for example, I go out there and I raise a billion dollar fund. What will be my focus? My focus will be extraction. If I need to sort of go downstream and actually make sure that, you know, I set up uh, a smelter, I set up a refiner, I set up a precursor industry. That means I need more capital. This is another thing that we're trying to think about. What do you do then? Who do you get that capital from? So you 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 have challenges throughout, you know. Um, so we really need to get our heads together. Uh, it, it, it has to stop being about conferences and policies. You, we need to sit down people in various countries and understand the various institutions. How are you going to help these guys who actually understand the sector? How are you going to give them enough capital for them to unlock these processes? Because for China, China is quite simple. You know, you have a one-party state. Every decision is made from uh, high up and is filtered down and people execute. The fundamental problem when you come to the West is that decisions are being made all over the place. So a lot of the times, uh, there, there are no synergies, there are no overlaps. People don't understand what the other person is doing. We are trying to change that, but there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, it, it's it's funny you should say that about uh, conferences. I, I must confess that I, I feel a certain frustration, uh, especially on the continent, that policymakers hover uh, over issue and, and they talk about beneficiation, value addition, but nobody really uh, breaks this down to say, but what does it mean and what will it take uh, to attract finance into this space. We operate under the false assumption that if we have the minerals, that's enough. Uh, and that 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 makes us sufficiently uh, competitive. And, and I fear that uh, that is really a huge part of the problem. Of course, the other problem happens that we're just talking to the wrong people. To your point, we have the miners, and then we have those who uh, finance and operate refineries, and then we have those who do the metals. In Africa, we, we talk to the mining industry about fabrication of metals, little realizing they're clueless. They don't do that. <laughs> no, no, this is a real tragedy uh, because what we really should be doing is going to South Korea, as you know. We shouldn't be going to Vietnam. We shouldn't be going to Japan and talking to Mitsui and saying, will you set up a factory? But instead, we are talking to Ria Tindu and telling them off for not uh, making steel, little knowing they don't make steel. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think there's a problem with our policymakers, Shinner, is that sometimes uh, mining, of all industries, mining is incredibly complicated. You know, you have so many silos that you have to understand. Oh, coming, uh, when it comes to these countries, how they can have influence, my view is that you should be actually be taking local capital 
and actually put it in, in, let's say, various institutions in Botswana, the Pula Fund, in South Africa, the RDC, the PIC. They should be saying, how many vehicles are there that are actually going to look at this sector? We are going to take a strategic stake in a general partner, let's say, if it's a private equity firm. We are, going to, we are not just going to allocate money. We actually want decision-making, whereas strategic decision-making within the investment committee, we have that control in terms of the strategy, whereby we can influence how that money is going to be deployed. But we're still so far away. Everyone is talking about money coming from all these various charities coming into Africa. We need to change that mindset. In South Africa, it is definitely the IDC and the PIC. In Botswana, I think the Buller Fund still has about I think almost 80% of the money in BlackRock ETFs. That money has to come into that industrialization of sub-Saharan sub -Saharan Africa. You know, you, we, need, we need those pieces of the puzzles to move. Yeah. You, know, you made a very important observation, which is the decision-making uh, structures are very cumbersome. Uh, in contrast to, say, China, where, as you said, you have a system and a strong man arrangement. The truth of the matter is that is also the case in the Gulf. And that's why those regions thrive because you, there is no huge bureaucracy around which we conference. A decision is made today by a couple of people and the rest must just deliver it. And, and so I think a huge part of uh, our problem here is what I call a false democratization of what are really investment decisions have been thrown into the political space and then it's just a great nobody moves yeah that is the fundamental problem right now everywhere right now in south africa you have something called africa's critical minerals but you look at the people that they have actually invited or people who are actually making talk it's mostly politicians I always make this joke, you know, that if I go to Mines and Money in London, you don't see a single politician on the podium. It is very industry people, banking people, actually talking about what they're doing, trying to actually find like-minded people. And we have this strange thing in Africa whereby even the conferences, you will wait for the president for two hours, he doesn't arrive. And, you know, you, and I think a lot of aid institutions, you know, and some TFIs, they can game their system quite well. They know what they need to say, but they, it doesn't need to really be supported by a substantially actionable plan. As long as they've made this announcement, you know, they, they have a photo where they're shaking hands. That's all. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> Which I find quite frustrating across Africa. Yeah, it's, it's a real tragedy. But of course, if we come back to the you know, the importance of driving investment, a huge part of the, the if you wish, narrative and goal in uh, financiers is that this principle of impact investing, especially as relates to benefits to communities, because with, with ESGs and the importance of social risk, you know, nobody wants to be caught out. Uh, is this changing the way financiers view projects or is this just uh, people being politically correct? I think a lot of it, and especially the past three years globally, we have been talking about, it has been more of a political topic. You know, I think you're starting to see people who are actually who want to understand what ESG means in the natural resources sector. 
Normally, when I have a conversation with uh, various institutions in Europe, I try and point them to uh, Royal Bafouquet and what has been done in Botswana with Debswana and the Pula Fund. For me, that is really ESG. You know, it is not about scorecards. And the problem when you when you approach it from the scorecard type of um, from a scorecard type of perspective, it tends to be about um, how, what do we have to report every quarter. It is not about what sort of impact are you actually having on those communities, which is very, very different from when you see what Botswana has achieved, when you see what the Royal Bafu Gang have achieved um, in, across the border in South Africa. So you're starting to see people question those scorecards type of mentality, whether they actually work. And when you guide them and try and show them real-world examples of what ESG means, they, I think they are willing to listen. It's still a long way to go, but they are willing to yeah, they, but uh, I mean, thinking uh, again about communities, are we still seeing communities as passive beneficiaries or are we beginning to think of them as investors? Because the Royal Buffington, uh case is one that speaks to a community investing rather than a community receiving social welfare, uh, you know, benefits or be driven by mining. I think at at this stage, companies still approach from it that you know what, as we are going to give them something uh, as we are making money. They're not really part of the process. Even the community trust the way it is set up, uh, it doesn't have any influence, and it is just about that. You know, we'll build a few clinics here, we'll build a few schools, we'll donate these shoes. Uh, it is just so different from what Royal Buff King has achieved. So I think it is that education process as well, but as well as our politicians have to understand uh, what, what the talking points should be when they're talking to these companies. Because let's be honest, a lot of them get away with murder because the people they're talking to don't understand, don't really have that level of detail to actually talk back. Yeah, it, it is not always a level playing field, but, but part of it, of course, is, is to your point. We, we have spent years uh, in the rhetorical space instead of being truly at the table and therefore being able to facilitate transfer of knowledge. I, 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 I'm always uh, struck by, in the mining industry, Quadelco in Chile, and then, of course, Sabali in, in Brazil and in the oil industry, Aramco, among others, where the host government have inserted themselves in the commercial space and with that build enough skill over time uh, essentially to be able to tilt the balance of power. Uh, but as you rightly said, these ceremonial activities that lack substance, you know, don't leave the countries any wiser, no matter how much politicking they might do in the, you know, in the political space. And, and so I, I was wondering, this constraint, these challenges in raising finance, when you look at indigenous junior miners, uh, are they in the same space as, say, Canadian juniors or Irish or Australian juniors vying for finance, or are they distinctly disadvantaged? Think in my opinion, that's just an afterthought. You know, um, the disregard and 
honestly the disrespect that you people sort of uh, uh, sort of have towards, let's say, artisanal miners, not just a, not just what they call Zamazams in South Africa, but people, let's say, you go to the DRC, people who come from that community, who are in that land, it is their land, and they're trying to make a living. Um, I think they are an afterthought, and I believe that the only way it will be sustainable, when we're really talking about ESG, it is how do you incorporate these people into your mind plan? How do you actually help them you know, so that they can actually build their own minds. You know, it's not just one of those things, hey, we are going to move them, we'll have a resettlement plan, we are going to move them from here, we're going to give them some houses. It's not really houses as we know. It's one or two bedrooms. Uh, at least they are 200 kilometers away from the mine now. We are fine with that. That has to change. And it, it is effectively how do our governments negotiate with miners? Um, I mean, what I'm being encouraged with when I'm speaking to the Europeans is that they understand that we need to create supply chains in the countries in which we operate. We need to do this smartly. You know, what do you start with? Uh, do you start with precursor industries for these battery metals? What do you? What, what is sustainable? You know, do you need to sort of uh, find one, let's say, smelter for two countries? You know, those conversations you start to see them coming up more and more. So I'm encouraged, but we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think that is the problem, you see. I, I, I think of it as uh, a process in which you are looking for the spark uh, from which greater things can happen. And, and I still don't think the policymakers on the continent understand where the spark is in the process. So we have... Namibia, we have Zimbabwe, and now Ghana all saying you cannot export lithium unprocessed. But really what they mean is that they just want the concentrate. Now, you and I know in terms of either tax revenue, employment, or any of the economic benefits that countries aspire to, that's not going to deliver. You're going to have to do much more to get to the mid and downstream before you have a critical mass of economic uh, you know, indicators. But the question is, given where we are, how do we get there? And, and to me, it is this absence of a proper analysis of what it takes that I think also is getting in the way of raising finance because what it means is that we don't really have a concrete project that a financier can look at. All we have is political talk. Am I reading this correctly or not, uh, Tsepo? You are reading it. It is just that we don't have anything coherent. We don't have anything substantive. You know, it is easy. For, I mean, you talked about the lives of Codelco, um, you know, in the lives of Chile. And if you think about that, uh, when, when Zambia was a top producing copper country uh, in the 60s or 70s, uh, Chile was only starting out. Now Chile has the uh, living standards of sovereign Europe. You look at Zambia, it's only producing, what, 700,000 tons of copper. So it is one of those things whereby you need to have a blueprint that you can walk these guys through. You know, um, The reason why the Gulf is so successful is because they gave these guys the terms on which to operate in their countries. And it was non-negotiable. And you actually provided incentives. You provided a solid framework. We need that urgently. Otherwise, we, in 20 years' time, we would have missed this boom as well. 
I tend to view this transition decarbonization as Africa's opportunity to set up critical industry in each and every country. Critical industri industries come with infrastructure. They come with the water ecosystem. I hope we get it right. Yeah, this is, I keep thinking about that myself, but thinking we missed the industrial revolution, but that was because we were colonies and the resources were feeding uh, British, Portuguese, Spanish, and French uh, industries. That we can be forgiven for. But I'm petrified that we are going to miss uh, the next revolution, which is the green revolution, for lack of a better word, unless we get on board. And tragically, a part of uh, our inability to attract money into commodities is that our value proposition beyond the fact that we have some of the minerals is quite weak. Uh, all the while, we presume that we are the only ones who have minerals, which is also not entirely uh, correct. So let me ask you a last question. If you were advising, say, an African minister in the current state who said, look, I'm struggling. I don't want to miss this train. I want to attract capital. Where would you suggest they start? Where I would start is quite simply, given that I'm a financier, I would say look at the industrial development corporation in that country and tell them, we are going to allocate this much for you. You're going to find fund managers, five or 10, or even five only. You're going to give them seed capital. We're going to be the cornerstone within that. We want you to go out there and actually raise more capital. We're going to have an influence on um, um, on strategy. We want you to go find the right partners, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in America, whether it's in Asia, that will come in a strategic with us and actually have enough capital so that we can unlock the project within our country. If you do that, you're going to have a lot of say in how your industry is going to develop uh, during this transition. Otherwise, capital is going to come in and it's going to dictate the terms to you. And in 20 years' time, you'll, you won't be that better off. Fantastic. That makes sense. Well, Tempo, thank you very much for uh, speaking to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I thought that this was very enlightening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sheila. Thank you for having me.